This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Glad you're with us again for Calvary Online. I'm John. We're beginning a new series today in the New Testament book of James. If you were with us for Hebrews, you can just turn the page, one page to the right, you'll find the book of James. That's not why we're doing it, but there are some interesting contrasts between the book of Hebrews and this letter written by James. Hebrews is deeply theological. You remember it was all about the Old Testament system and how it pointed to Jesus. All about who Jesus was and what he had done for us. So if Hebrews is deeply theological, James is deeply practical. It's more about us and our day-to-day life as Christians. How we live as followers of Jesus. So if, if Hebrews was really vertical in its focus, James is a bit more horizontal. There's so much in the book of James about relationships with other people. How do we care for them? Especially people in need, like people who are sick or orphans or widows. How do we love our neighbors? What do we do with issues like justice and privilege in our society today? How do we handle a culture that's increasingly polarized and divisive? And James is personal too. Like, what do we do when bad stuff happens to us? James is like a day-to-day, moment-by-moment manual for the life of the Christian. You could say it this way. James is a book about how to be a Christian, not just how to be called a Christian. You know the difference? If you're new to following Jesus and you know nothing about what it would mean to live a life as a Christian, this book is for you. You'll get a great idea of what it's really like to live as a follower of Jesus. Now, there's a big difference between being a Christian, which is mostly what James is about, and becoming a Christian. And we'll be careful as we study this book to not confuse those two things. Some people dislike the book of James because it feels a little bit like a to-do list. It kind of is. If you take the number of verses in the book of James and then figure out how many commands are in it, it has the highest of the highest percentage of commands per verses of any New Testament book. It's, it's kind of like the New Testament version of Proverbs filled with all sorts of short and pointed pieces of advice. James is easy to remember, easy to understand, and really helpful for life. So if you haven't already, open your Bible with me to James chapter 1 and verse 1. We are going to mark up the text together during this study, so grab something to write with. By the way, as Steph mentioned, if you'd like a copy of this journal and you can't make it to one of our campuses, we would love to send it to you free of charge. So you can click this link or you can click the link in the uh, description below and we would love to get this into your hands. This will be a helpful tool for you as we mark up James and you can make notes and write insights that you find as we study this book together and it'd be a helpful thing for you to keep. So we're in James chapter 1 verse 1 and today we're going to look at the first four verses which say, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. 
Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter that we're going to study together. I pray, God, as we open it, that you would remind us what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That through the work of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand these words and to conform our life more and more like it, so that we might become more and more like your Son, Jesus. We pray all of this and ask all of this in his name. So James begins with the author's name. James. Most people believe him to be the brother of Jesus. There are a few men who are named James in the New Testament. There's James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, who was one of the first followers of Jesus. But that James was killed too early to be the author of this book. And the other James that are mentioned in the New Testament weren't noteworthy enough to be the author of this letter. But this James... The brother of Jesus is mentioned throughout the New Testament, even in the Gospels. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus had come to Nazareth, which was his hometown, where he and James had grown up, and he was preaching there in the synagogue. The people heard him and they said, who is this guy? Where, where did he get all of this insight? Where did he learn all of this stuff? How is he performing all of these miracles? And in verse 3 of Mark chapter 6, they said this, is this not the carpenter? the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and, and Judas, and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So James is listed there in Mark chapter 6 as Jesus' brother, and so is a man named Judas. We call him Jude. He also wrote a New Testament letter right before the book of Revelation. It's so short, there's not even any chapters, but in his introduction, in the first verse of Jude, he opens his letter by saying, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. James was so well known in the early church that Jude identifies himself with a little name drop. You guys know who I am. I'm the brother of James. James was one of the most important leaders in the first century church. He lived in Jerusalem, which was the center of the early church. Before he returned to heaven, Jesus told his followers that, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Beginning in Jerusalem, where James was, the church spread to Judea, and then to Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, came to visit Jerusalem shortly after he was converted. And he met James. And then like 14 years later, he came back and, and he described James as one of the pillars of the early church, along with the Apostle Peter and John, who was Jesus' closest friend and disciple. And the book of Acts describes James as like the key decision maker in some of the church's most important early decisions. But did you know that James didn't believe in Jesus at first? James, 
and also Jude, the brothers of Jesus who wrote books in the Bible at one point in their lives didn't believe in Jesus. In John chapter 7, there was this big festival happening and Jesus' brothers, James and Jude and the others, are trying to get him to go to that festival and kind of show off. They're saying, if you can do all these things you've been talking about, why don't you go to the big event and show everyone? Prove it. It's almost like they're trying to call his bluff. And Jesus says, my time hasn't come yet. I'm not going to go. It's almost like his brothers weren't really trying to get him to go and minister. They were sort of making fun of him. And it says in John chapter 7, verse 5, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. I mean, when you think about it, it's not really that surprising. It, It would be kind of hard to believe that your brother, who you've grown up with, who you played with, who you probably shared a room with, was the Son of God, the Savior of the world. So what changed? What would cause Jesus's brother to go from not believing in him to being one of his most devoted followers? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes the way Jesus appeared to people after he rose from the dead. Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to Peter first and then to all of the disciples, and then he appeared to more than 500 people. And then in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. So it's likely that James became a follower of Jesus after he saw him alive again. He needed no further proof that Jesus actually was who he said he was than this, that Jesus came back from the dead, just like he promised he would. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important event in the history of the world. No matter what you've heard about Jesus of Nazareth, no matter what you think about what he said and did when he was alive, this is the most important thing about him, that he died and he rose again and is alive today. And that, my friends, changes everything. The resurrection changed the life of James. He went from not believing in Jesus to, well, let's see how he describes Jesus as he opens his letter. In verse 1, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls Jesus, his brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. What would have to happen in order for you to call your brother or sister Lord? It's like, king or queen. And you'd willingly do that, not under compulsion in like some sort of monarchy, but choosing to call him king. That's actually kind of crazy when you think about it. So James calls Jesus Lord, and he also calls him Christ. That's the way that we translate the title Messiah, Savior, which was so important to a Jew like James. So James considers Jesus his Lord and his Savior, his Master and his Messiah. Why? Because Jesus appeared to James alive after James 
had watched him die. Personal transformation because of proof of the resurrection. James goes from not believing in Jesus to calling him the Lord Jesus Christ and also describing himself as the Lord's servant. You notice that? You could circle the word servant there. That word is all over the Bible. We saw that Jude used it in his intro. Paul uses it all the time to describe himself, and Peter does also. Even in the Old Testament, Moses and David are called God's servants. I love that the most important leaders in the history of the church are nothing more than servants. That's how they view themselves as nothing more than servants, which is so different than the way the world operates, right? I mean, it matters who you know. It matters where you've come from. It matters where you went to school. It matters how much money you have. Your last name matters in the world, but not in the kingdom. The best seats in the kingdom are filled by servants of the king. The best seats aren't filled with like a who's who list. You don't get to pay extra to get in the front row. Power and privilege don't play a role in the kingdom economy. The best seats in the kingdom are filled by servants of the king. And maybe more than anything, that's what the book of James is about. How to serve Jesus. As we said before, how to be a Christian. Christians are servants. And James is a good model for us. He doesn't pull rank. He doesn't act entitled because he was related to Jesus. In fact, one author who wrote a book about this letter, Douglas Moo, said, What qualified James to write such a letter was not his physical relationship to Jesus, but his spiritual relationship. That's what matters. If you call Jesus your Lord and Savior, you have the same relationship with Jesus that James had, a spiritual one. And the only reason we can have a spiritual relationship with Jesus is because of what he did. Because he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for you. Do you believe that? If you do, you can call yourself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my hope is that's what we'll discover together as we study this book. How to live our lives as servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. James wrote his letter, it goes on in verse 1, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He's, remember, in Jerusalem, and many Jewish believers had been scattered all over the Mediterranean region, dispersed, and life in the first century was hard for them. The uh, very noteworthy scholar and author, Perry Marshall, explored the conditions that most first century Jewish believers lived in and explains that there was a sharp contrast between a small, wealthy population and a relatively impoverished majority. There were big tax rates on the poor and regular droughts in this agrarian society meant that people were constantly struggling to have their basic needs met, like things like food and clothing. 
In fact, things were so bad, especially in Jerusalem for Jewish believers, that Paul had to take up a special offering amongst the Gentile churches that he visited to help meet their needs and support them. Add on top of that the social pressure that people experienced when they converted from Judaism to following Jesus. They were called blasphemers. That's a word we don't use anymore. We call people like that heretics. They were ostracized. They were disowned by their family and friends. And and it's in this context that James begins his letter by saying, in verses 2 to 4, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, when life is hard, consider it joy. Seriously? I'm not sure that that's the most helpful advice. Let's set joy aside here for a second and look at what he describes as trials. We'll come back to joy, but notice a few things about trials. James says, when you meet trials, not on the offhand that you should come across a trial, not just in case you meet trials, not if you meet trials, but when you meet trials, life is hard. It was hard in the first century. It continues to be hard in the 21st century. And we all meet trials, and they're often unexpected. Some translations of these verses say, when you face trials. And the meaning behind that word almost has an element of surprise to it. Trials are unexpected. Like, ooh, I I didn't see that coming. I, I didn't expect that. And these trials are of various kinds, all kinds of different trials, everyday problems with money and relationships, work and sickness and grief, all kinds. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Trials are inevitable in the life of the Christian. But you know, James says in verse 3, that trials have a purpose in your life. They test your faith. Now, at first reading, that may sound like God's some sort of high school teacher who's trying to you know, trip you up with a really complicated question on the final exam, but that's not the idea of testing here. Testing in, in the mind of James means like a approving of your faith. It's, it's not an exam, but it's, it's the means by which the quality or the genuineness of your faith is proven. It's like testing a ring to prove that it's gold. He says, you know, you know this, that the testing of your faith produces, proves steadfastness. So trials are inevitable in the life of the Christian, and these trials are intended to produce endurance or steadfastness. The idea here is like a boat in a storm, but not one that drops its anchor, and then just hangs on and gets pushed further and further back by the storm. But instead, slowly but steadily advances into a storm, faces the headwind, and motors through the waves. That's steadfastness. 
And that's the outcome of trials in the life of a Christian. He assumes that trials will produce endurance or steadfastness in your faith. Now, that doesn't mean he thinks that every trial we face uh, will face it perfectly. In fact, endurance can be produced on the backside of a failure. We learn from it. The Lord helps to restore us, and our faith is strengthened. Think of Peter. He had a fairly public failure, but he didn't lose faith, and the Lord used it to produce steadfastness, endurance in his life. Because, James says, steadfastness has an effect on us, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to live some sort of perfect life at some point, that we totally stop sinning. It means that these trials, which are tests that produce endurance in us, lead to greater maturity. We grow when we're tested. We become more and more like Jesus. Now, one day, we will be perfect when we stand in his presence. But until then, the the trials that we face in life lead to a greater maturity of faith. That's their purpose. And that's what every servant of the Lord Jesus Christ wants in her or his life. And it can't happen without trials. And so, circling back to that word we left behind earlier, we count it all as joy. Because if God's purpose for our trials is that we would become more and more like Jesus, we count that as joy. The idea here is is not, though, one of like a feeling or an emotion of joy. He's not saying you should feel warm and fuzzy inside when you experience trials or when you're hurting. But instead, he's encouraging us to think about trials joyfully. Some translations say, consider it joy. Think about it that way. The last time we were together, we opened Lamentations chapter 3, and we saw in there the author say, In the midst of sorrow, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. It was the conscious decision of a sufferer to call something to mind, to think about something different than the circumstances and emotions that he was facing. Thoughts and emotions are two different things. We don't have to be held captive by our emotions. We can feel what we're feeling in the midst of sorrow, in the middle of trials. We can feel big feelings. But we can also be called, as James does here, to think about trials as joy. Because they make us more like Jesus. Joy is a settled contentment. A resolute trust in God in the midst of a trial. That is how we live as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just turn your Bible left one page to Hebrews chapter 12 and the second part of verse 1, which says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who... For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus looked at the trial he experienced on the cross for us as joy, and he endured it for you. And because of that, 
we are privileged to call ourselves his servants. Jesus, thank you that you endured the cross on our behalf, that you experienced various trials in your own life, and that you endured them. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that in your sovereignty, in your kindness to us, in your purposes for us, that we might experience trials too, and that through those trials, they might produce endurance in us that helps us to grow more and more like you. We need your help to do that. We need to cling to you. We need to be reminded in the midst of pain that these trials actually help us. Lord Jesus, would you remind us of that and help us as we face trials of various kinds in the various places where we are. We love you, Jesus, and thank you that you loved us enough to endure suffering for us. We pray all of this in your powerful and wonderful name. Amen. We'd love to walk with you as you follow Jesus. If there's any ways we can help you or pray with you, please let us know. You can always fill out our online connect card. Until we're together again, grace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ.